Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage rights. Closed the state's last abortion Mr. provider. Has now apologized to his congregation. The Bible has application for every part of our lives. He her views as a Southern Baptist. He's on camera saying that Bill Barr was a great attorney general. In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, it was the deadliest school shooting in U.S. history, but according to my guest today, it was also the most preventable. Welcome to The Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today... We're examining what led to the school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14, 2018. That shooting in Parkland, Florida, claimed the lives of 17 people. But my guest today says the shooter was a psychopath with an established pattern of violence and murderous intent. But administrators did nothing to stop him. Why? Well, in part because of career ambition and bad liberal policies, but more fundamentally, because administrators had a faulty view of both reality and mankind. My guest today is co-author of a new book, Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's Students. This book is already a number one bestseller on Amazon. It actually doesn't even release until Tuesday, but I've been able to read a pre-release copy, and what this book describes is absolutely shocking. When he was just two years old, the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz, reportedly tossed a four-month-old baby into a pool. In pre-K, Cruz had to wear a restrictive harness just to ride the school bus. In middle school, he made a video of himself drowning a cat. In high school, Cruz was constantly talking about guns, a desire to kill, and even to cannibalize other people. He vandalized Stoneman Douglas High School, left death threats, attacked other students, and brought weapons to school. But instead of expelling Cruz... Administrators tried to manage his behavior, and instead of arresting him, administrators and police minimized his behavior. Again, the question is why. Why didn't administrators or someone in authority do something? Well, joining me to discuss this is Max Eden. He's the co-author of Why Meadow Died. He's also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who's done extensive research on education policy and school discipline. So, Max, welcome. It is a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joy. So, Max, help us understand this mind-boggling failure that led this school to really ignore all of these red flags, um, allow this violent man really free reign to wreak havoc there at the school. What happened? Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's a it's a big story to tell, so I think it might be good to start uh, with a little bit of, of what happened with him in middle school, a little bit of what happened with him in high school, which... Both cases relate to broader themes of, as you said, because kind of a misconception of the notion of man mm-hmm. uh, that is kind of reigning in the way that schools look at kids, right? In middle school, this student, uh, his behavior was recorded. He was suspended every other day for a calendar year. He was talking about guns at any, any chance he could get. He was threatening students. He was talking to them about skinning animals. Teachers were so scared of him that they eventually said he can't walk anywhere in school without a security guard next to him. And when that wasn't enough, they called his mom to have his mom walk with him and the security guard in school. 
This went on for a year at this level before they managed to transfer him to a specialized school. Uh, And that relates to, you know, the way that schools view disturbed students as having uh, a disability and requiring a whole lot of paperwork to properly and scientifically manage rather than understanding that, you know, there's evil within some young men and some young women. So, you know, we can talk more about that later. The other kind of starting point is what happened with him in high school, in which case his behavior wasn't recorded. You have security staff, you have teachers saying he was brought to the office all of the time, but you don't see a record for him. You have students saying, we told administrators that he threatened to kill us, and you don't see a record of that either. You know, the only time he was officially disciplined in his first semester was a time when his normal assistant principal was off campus, and then they took him drawing swastikas on lunchroom tables, labeled it vandalism, and and did nothing further. That relates to this pressure to try to fix the so-called school-to-prison pipeline by lowering suspensions, lowering expulsions, lowering arrests, basically pressuring school administrators to show that there are no problems in reality uh, by not recording them. Mm-hmm. And so at every step of the way, there were these decisions that were made that were obviously grossly irresponsible, but made perfect sense given the policies, and the policies made perfect sense given the kind of ideology that was reigning in the Broward County schools and is, and is becoming ever more pervasive across American education in general. Well, yeah, you're right. It was reigning in Broward County, but the reason we're talking about this is because uh, you would think after something like this happens, administrators go, wow, this was a big mistake. Let's make sure we're not doing this anywhere in the country. But it's kind of the exact opposite. This is reigning throughout our schools, and you're right, there's this ideology behind it. And it's one that doesn't recognize evil. It seems to me it sort of paints evil as not something, uh, as we understand it in the Judeo-Christian worldview, that it's something that is from the depravity of mankind, our rebellion against God, that we are fallen creatures. But no, evil is something that's sort of a social construct, and it's often because of the oppression that we've experienced and so we have these social justice policies that are, that are instituted in the schools. One of them, and I understand this PROMISE program, um, actually keeps students in public schools from being reported to police, being arrested for crimes that they should be arrested for, that would have given uh, Nicholas Cruz, the shooter in Parkland, a, an arrest warrant. So when he went to get a gun, he wouldn't have been able to. But they didn't do that because of this PROMISE program. Describe that program where it comes from, and how it was instituted. Yeah, so I'll, I'll start with the program and then get to where it comes from and yeah. work our way back to the, the ideology behind it, right? The, mm-hmm. the Promise program uh, on paper basically gives students three free misdemeanors every single year. <laughs> um, so at your fourth misdemeanor in a given year, you can then finally talk to the school resource officer. Whether or not the school resource officer does anything is still open, but three free misdemeanors a year. Uh, instead of being introduced to the juvenile justice system, you go to this alternative education site for a few days where you know, nothing really happens. In reality, the, the leader there was a, a horrifically abusive woman who demeaned her colleagues uh, consistently and was eventually removed. Mm. But when you give kids three free misdemeanors a year, when you also you know, on the side, literally train principals to refuse to cooperate with law enforcement, to refuse to let law enforcement on campus if they're trying to execute an arrest warrant, then arrests will go down. And 
if your view of uh, you know your view of men, your view of kids, if you look at these spreadsheets where you see uh, African American students, students who are designated with disabilities, are quote unquote disproportionately disciplined, disproportionately arrested. Uh, if when you see that you don't admit that this behavior can have a root in you know what is going on within the child, and that can have roots in what's going on in the child's home, in society around them, then these disparities become entirely inexplicable in any way other than this must be the school's fault. You know, this must be a product of institutional racism, institutional oppression, that the school and the police are, are uh, you know, actively pushing on innocent young men and women. And if you think that, then there should be no cost to dramatically decreasing arrests. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not quite the case. The, the Promise program was a, a national leader in this. It was the diversionary program and then all of these other leniency policies around it, which were very quickly taken uh, by the Obama Department of Education, Superintendent Arnie Duncan, who was a former colleague of Broward Superintendent Robert Runcie, and he saw, oh, arrests are going down. This looks great. These disparities are being closed. This is, this is clearly working. And he took this policy and made it into a federal guidance document that basically threatened and coerced school districts across the country saying, uh, if you don't follow suit by trying to get all these numbers down, we will come after you and we might take away your money. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the ideology behind it that started as a, as a more contained thing, you know, used to be just the province of, of some academics has now become both, you know, functionally and also ideologically kind of uh, de rigueur for public school across the country. Hmm. So it is instituted all over. And Arnie Duncan, those of us listening in Chicago where this show originates, know that name. Um, he was very instrumental here in Chicago, then goes to the federal government and institutes a lot of these programs. Again, this was under the Obama administration, but is it still happening right now? Well, the, the federal push for it is no longer happening. Um, after the Parkland shooting, the Trump administration made a, a school safety commission to investigate what went wrong, issue recommendations, and one recommendation was to stop pushing these policies for the federal level. So the Department of Education is no longer threatening school districts to implement these policies, but that doesn't mean that they're going anywhere. Right, and uh, we have the same administrators. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, the same we, administrators, the same incentives. I mean, they're going nowhere fast unless parents wake up. Right. Well, again, that's Max Eden, author of Why Meadow Died and a Senior Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. I'm Julie Royce. You're listening to The Royce Report. If you'd like to weigh in, the number uh, to call is 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. You're listening to The Royce Report with your host, Julie Royce. Well, was the Parkland school shooting the most preventable mass murder in U.S. history? Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. And according to my guest today, the shooter who killed 17 people at Stoneman Douglas High School last year had a long history of violent and disturbing behavior, but administrators and police refused to recognize and contain evil and instead tried to manage and heal it. Again, joining me today is Max Eden author of Why Meadow Died and a Senior Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. This book releases on Tuesday, and if you'd like to get a copy, I am giving away about five copies today 
Uh, just go to julieroys.com slash giveaway, and you can enter that giveaway to receive the book. Again, julieroys.com slash giveaway to get the book, Why Meadow Died. Also, you can join our conversation, the number to call, 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Or you can join the discussion online by going to facebook.com slash reach Julie Royce or on Twitter, my handle is at reach Julie Royce. Max, I want to, I know we're talking a lot about sort of the below the waterline issues, the ideology that leads to these um these shootings and just ignoring these violent tendencies in people. But I also want to honor the victim. And this is why this book is called Why Meadow Died. Meadow was an 18-year-old student at um, Stoneman Douglas High School. She lost her life, life tragically because administrators didn't do what they were supposed to do. Her father, Andrew, I understand now, has become sort of a crusader, even though he doesn't like that name, but he is really making some changes at the policy level because of what happened to his daughter. Can you tell us a little bit more about Mel- Meadow, who she was, and uh, and how she lost her life in this tragic shooting? Yeah, I mean, Meadow was, you know, Andy describes her, my co-author Andrew Pollack uh, describes her as, a, as an all-American girl, you know, a girl who could uh, go off-roading, do ATVs with her brothers one day, and then, you know, be kind of a, a supermodel girly girl the next. And the kind of girl who, whenever there was anybody new at school, she would go up to them and, and she would introduce herself and talk to them and, and try to figure out, oh, who would this person like and how can I introduce this person to a friend and, and make this person feel welcome, you know? And she was, I, I never got the chance to meet her, but she was both, you know, a, a beautiful, kind soul, but also one who could be, you know, fierce and protective over others. And one thing Andy says with uh, with mixed pride, um, very very mixed emotions. You know, she was shot five times on the third floor of the school, and she crawls across the hallway, sees a freshman, and, and tries to drape her body over the freshman's body to protect her, only to be shot four more times between the two by a gunman who got on campus that day despite the fact that a security monitor saw him mm-hmm. getting out of the Uber, recognized him as, that's crazy boy. That's the guy who we thought would shoot up a school. I can see that he's carrying a rifle bag. I don't want to approach him because maybe he has a handgun. But even after I hear large percussion noises coming out of the school, I don't want to call a code red because I didn't see the weapon. And if it's not really you know, a mass murder going on, I'd be the one to get in trouble if I called for a code red. So, you know, in that one incident, it's kind of uh, relates to what happened the whole way through this, this effort to not, you know, look bad on paper by the adults uh, led to these extremely bad decisions the whole way through that culminated in a security guy whose one job is to alert uh, the school to an intruder knowing who just came on campus, being pretty sure what was going on, and still not being willing to make a call that would have saved her life for fear that he would look bad for doing it. Yeah, I, that chapter where you describe the shooting, I mean, you, you just can't read that chapter and not just be very emotionally affected. Um, <laughs> I was reading it yesterday, and my husband comes in, and he's like, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, oh, my word. I mean, it just, it, it's so tragic. And, and I think the thing that made me the angriest was the actual person on the grounds, on campus, who actually had a gun that day, 
who was too cowardly to do anything, the one police officer who was there, right? Um, yes. Well, yes, yes, and more than that. I mean, Scott Peterson, the school resource officer, was the one man on campus with a gun. Uh, he was taken over to the building uh, in a little golf cart, and rather than approach the building, he uh, went to the building next door and remained in place for 48 minutes. And mm. not only did he remain in place, but he actually called out, do not approach the 1200 building where it was happening. Stay at least 500 feet away. And maybe in part because of that warning, maybe not, there were seven other Broward Sheriff's deputies who arrived on scene while the shooting was still unfolding. And all seven of them remained outside the building. Not one of the eight police officers who were on the scene while there were shots ringing out from within a school went into that school. You know, the shooter had would have had 11 full minutes to himself in a, in a building with 800 students because not one man sworn to protect the public decided to step into that building. Man, and, and isn't sort of the protocol now that the minute you hear anything, the protocol is your authority, or policeman, security, everybody is supposed to go and confront the gunmen, yes? Well, in most places, yes. I mean, ever since Columbine, the protocol has been if there's a shooting, if there's a school shooting, you don't negotiate, you don't wait outside, you go straight in. Mm-hmm. Um, but Broward Sheriff Scott Israel, uh, quite, a, quite an ideological kind of guy in, in many ways, he changed his policy from his active shooter policy from the deputies shall go in to the deputies may go in. Mm-hmm. So in the sick way, <laughs> with these eight deputies standing outside the building, thinking to themselves full well, must have been thinking, there are children being murdered right in front of me. Mm. The decision to not go in was actually in accordance with the policy set by their boss. Unbelievable. And, you know, this Broward County Sheriff, uh, I, the quote that's in the book is, is absolutely breathtaking. He had a quote, we measure our success by the kids we keep out of jail, not by the kids we put in jail. So you have a sheriff's department who, it, so it's not just the school who uh, led to this failure in the shooting. It was the sheriff's department as well. They received, initially I think it wasn't it reported that they received 23 calls to Nicholas Cruz's home and, and they per- protested and said, no, 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 it wasn't 23. Well, then when, they te- when there went more research and went into the books more, we found out they received 45 calls to Cruz's home, none of which resulted in arrest, Correct. That's correct. And this is, this is, again, you know, to take it below water, this is downstream from the ideology we were talking about earlier, right? I mean, uh, I think the Judeo-Christian view of, of, of the state's role in law is to try to contain evil and try to maintain order. But um, this alternative vision suggests that, you know, it is the police who are the oppressors, and any apparent uh, statistical inequities are a product of police iniquity and that the police need to be reined in. So when you, uh, you, know, when you do that, you, you think to yourself, well, we just have to stop arresting kids full stop. That is how we do our jobs as, as you know, members of law enforcement, by not enforcing a law because we view ourselves to be untrustworthy. That's, that's the Sheriff Israel ideology. And, and I think the most remarkable you know, concrete manifestation of that in this place, in this case, was a mom called the Broward Sheriff's Office and she said, 
uh, my daughter told me that she saw a post on Instagram by this individual saying, I am going to get this gun and I'm going to shoot up the school. And the Broward Sheriff's deputy, Edward Eason, allegedly said to her, well, that's protected by the First Amendment. Oh, man. Which, suffice to say, it's not. Um, And then when the mom said, well, how can we prevent him from getting a gun when he turns 18? And he said, well, that's protected by the Second, which, suffice to say, if you threaten to kill, it's not. Um, But if you're under pressure to not arrest juveniles, you're not going to arrest juveniles. That is unbelievable. I think that that sheriff's deputy needs to be instructed a little bit that there's something called the clear and present danger with speech. And when there's a clear and present danger, they're absolute. That is not protected. That is when we say, no, you, you, you can't have that speech. I mean, there's, these were death threats. And that wasn't the only one, was it? No, no, that wasn't the only one. And he threatened, uh, he threatened to kill several of his classmates, Wylan Stoneman Douglas, and they told me they told... Uh, they brought to the school's attention. Nothing was done. I think that, you know, the other maybe most dramatic, jaw-dropping thing for your listeners to understand, and, and again, they need to understand this case is just. All right, hold that thought. Hold that yeah. thought, Max. When we come back, we'll get to that jaw-dropping uh, thing that you have to say. Again, the number to call: three one two six six zero twenty five ninety four. Three one two six six zero twenty five ninety four. I'll get to your calls when I come back, and again, we'll hear more from Max Eden author of Why Meadow Died and a Senior Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. We'll be right back after a short break. Former U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy is coming to the Chicago area this October for a special conversation at Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum. Learn how Kennedy, a diplomat, an author, and the eldest child of President John F. Kennedy, carries on her father's legacy of public service at this unique opportunity for the Chicagoland community. Get your tickets today for this lively conversation hosted by nationally syndicated radio host and commentator Eric Metaxas. The World Leaders Forum brings recognized world leaders to the region each year to inspire leadership for all who attend. Many great thinkers and leaders have keynoted this prominent event. You won't want to miss Caroline Kennedy this fall. Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum is October 8th, 7 p.m. at the Renaissance Schomburg Convention Center. Tickets start at $75 and are available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. Once again, tickets available now at judsonu.edu slash WLF. We now return to The Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. When a society denies the existence of evil, the result can be devastating. Welcome back to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're discussing the most deadly school shooting in U.S. history and the faulty worldview that led to it. That shooting occurred on February 14, 2018, at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and the shooter, Nicholas Cruz, had a well-documented history of violence, death threats, and an obsession with guns, yet liberal school administrators refuse to acknowledge evil. They refuse to acknowledge the depravity of mankind, and as a result, 17 people lost their lives. Joining me today is Max Eden, co-author of Why Meadow Died, The People and Policies That Created the Parkland Shooter and Endanger America's uh, Students. Our studio lines are open, and you can join our discussion as well. The number to call, 312-660-2594. That's 312-660-2594. Or you can join the online discussion by going to facebook.com slash reachjulieroys, and Roys is spelled R-O-Y-S. And on Twitter, our handle is at reachjulieroys. 
Max, um, I want to get to a, a caller who, who just called, but first I want to give you an opportunity to, you, you, you had a jaw-dropping uh, point of detail that you were going to mention right before the break, so let me give you an opportunity to, t- to mention that. Yeah, I mean, so it's the, it's kind of a, there was this one week, the week that he turned 18 years old, he got into this big fight at school, he called a student, the N-word, attacked him, mm-hmm. several students wrote statements to the administrators saying, you know, this kid has threatened to kill us, he's brought knives to school, brought bullets to school, we're so scared of him. Uh, that same same week, he was, the mental health authorities were called out three times, once to his house, twice to his school, for concerns that he was getting into fights with his mother, that he was trying to kill himself, that he was had written kill at the top of his notebook because he was getting into a fight with his mom about whether or not he could buy a gun. Not one of those times did the mental health authorities think, oh, we need to take a look at this kid. We need to take him under observation. And, you know, when faced with all of this, the school administrators didn't think to themselves, wow, this kid is dangerous. He needs to be introduced to the juvenile justice system. What they were operating under was, according to the superintendent, a philosophy that we aren't going to continue to arrest our kids and give them a criminal record. So rather than having him arrested at any point in this week based on this behavior, they literally said to him, you are not allowed to bring a backpack to school anymore, and we're going to frisk you every day for fear that you might be carrying a deadly weapon. Wow. So, you know, something is profoundly wrong when, when adults who we trust with the care of our students can look at a kid and say, you're too dangerous. We think you're going to bring a deadly weapon, so we're going to prohibit you from having the opportunity, frisk you to make super sure, but heaven forbid we introduce you to the police. Right. Well, and it makes me wonder, what would it take? What would it take for someone to actually get arrested in Broward County schools when, I mean, this, this guy did everything you have to do. And, and we had a caller call in. Um, she's anonymous, wanted to stay anonymous, didn't want to stay on the line. But she said, why is it that we have this rights of one person, Nicholas Cruz, that seems to trump all the rights of all these other students within the school, as well as the teachers and the faculty, clearly a danger to them. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, it is, it, it's an outgrowth of the ideology, right? I mean, this is... Uh... He, he was he's labeled as having a disability right but which and you are granted a whole bunch of rights if you if you have a disability and nothing in federal law says those rights need to be weighed against the rights of other students this becomes extremely problematic when we label uh, students who are deeply uh, emotionally disturbed as having an emotional and behavioral disability at that point school administrators have to consider their rights and literally aren't supposed to consider and weigh the rights of other students with them. They need to manage these students uh, with an eye towards their quote-unquote rights and totally in keeping with all the paperwork burdens that we placed upon them. So normal human judgment, you know, the decisions that we should be able to trust these adults to make, uh, they can't make because we tell them you can only consider the rights of the troubled kids and you have to do everything you're doing through a lens of paperwork and bureaucracy rather than intuition and human judgment right and and to me if you're going to follow this to its logical conclusion we just get rid of our entire penal system right i mean why um, even have it <laughs> i mean what's the yeah, point I mean, that that is the they, they they got quite close to that in in the broward county schools you know this is this wasn't in the book this came out two weeks ago in a poll the broward teachers union polled their teachers 1887 responded out of those teachers only three 
expected that if a student were to assault a teacher, the student would be arrested. Good grief. Compared, compared to seven who thought the student would get a treat. <laughs> wow. And, and I have to say, my husband um, spent his career in the public school system. He's a retired public school teacher. And I remember him escorting a student down the hall, and uh, the student attacked him. And that student, that was his last day at the school. He was gone immediately. So, I mean, I, I thank God that the school he worked in seemed to acknowledge that, that this is important and that they, these students can't be in there if they're behaving that way. But clearly, not happening in Broward County. And, and I want to go to this, you know, this idea that, that these kids have emotional disabilities. It seems to me this, this flows from this sort of naturalistic worldview where, you know, every, every child is born into this world with sort of a clean slate and it, it just must be these, these bad influences that make these children turn evil. Because there isn't real evil in their hearts. There couldn't be any, like, true depravity. There couldn't actually be some demonic forces at play in the world. It's, it's all some sort of naturalistic thing. We have to come up with a, an evolutionary, you know, way of describing this. And yet this kid, Nicholas Cruz, I mean, an adopted kid goes into a home, as far as we know, I mean, it seems like we have a, a mother who is somewhat of an enabler, and she did allow him to watch violent video games, and, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit, too. But there doesn't seem to be, other than the fact that his, his adoptive father died, but he, he was acting out before then. I mean, can we explain this, this child's evil behavior? Um, I mean, I, in, in my opinion, it was, it was inborn. It was, um, you know, he is... Whether whether you're of a religious or a, or a scientific persuasion, I mean, he's born the the son of a crack addict, career criminal mother. His you know older sister was also a criminal. There was he throws a, a an infant into a pool when he's two years old. There's something in the core of his soul that is you know that that tends towards evil. But what I write in the book is that you know it's not a unique thing. We're supposed to build our our institutions to contain our demons and. Uh, if he had institutions that were working around him that would have seen him for what he was and responded to him as what he was, then, you know, this, what I think was just an inborn, inbred uh, desire to kill and to destroy could have been contained. But he only had a, a mother who was herself kind of an, a floating atom, disconnected from the community, no religious roots, uh, a school, a mental health system, a police mm -hmm. force, all of which were oriented towards uh, the path of least resistance. You know, nobody around him looked at him, thought there's something deeply wrong, and we need to take an aggressive hand on it. Mm. I feel like if they did, Max, we it need could to go to break. But when we come back, yep. I want to discuss that more. Was there something demonic going on with this guy? I, I really do wonder that. Again, you're listening to the Roy's Report. We'll be right back after a short break. Thank you for listening to the Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. The Roy's Report is a listener-supported program. And we're only able to broadcast this program with donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to see this quality program continue, please go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and click on the Donate button. And as a thank you for your gift of any size, we'll send you the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by the late famed apologist Norm Geisler. Just go to julieroys.com and click on the Donate button. We now return to The Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. Well, did Parkland school shooting victim Meadow Pollock die because school administrators failed to acknowledge the depravity of mankind and the existence of evil? 
Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're talking about what some have called the most preventable school shooting in U.S. history. The shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on February 14, 2018, claimed the lives of 17 people. But the shooter, who had a violent history, never should have been able to buy guns, and he never should have been placed in the regular school population. That's according to my guest this morning, Max Eden, co-author of Why Meadow Died, a book on the shooting and policies that led to it. That book releases on Tuesday. If you'd like a copy, just go to, uh, we're giving away several of them. Go to Julie Roy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway, and you can enter to win a copy of this book. We've had an outstanding conversation today. If you've missed any part of it, uh, I want to let you know that you can uh, listen to it again. We'll have a podcast up at my website in about an hour after the uh, the show ends. So just go to julieroysagain.com, julieroys.com. Click on the podcast tab. Also, I want to let you know that next week, leading apologist Dr. Michael Brown will be joining me to answer skeptics' toughest questions about Christianity. You may remember about a month ago, Hillsong songwriter Marty Sampson said that he was losing his faith because he couldn't find answers to questions like, why would God send anyone to hell? Or are there a lot of contradictions in the Bible? Well, Dr. Brown is someone who has been discussing tough questions like that for the past 40 years. And if you'd like to submit a question for Dr. Brown to answer, just email us at theroysreport uh, at julieroys.com. Again, Roys is spelled R-O-Y-S. That's theroysreport.com. But returning to our discussion this morning, again, joining me is Max Eden. Uh, And Max, uh, before the break... We were talking just shortly, and, and you know, when you, when you talk about this in the general population, people kind of look at you like you're, you're little nuts if you think that something might have a demonic component. But like you said, this shooter, Nicholas Cruz, had seemed troubled and, and actually damn it, you know, violent from the very beginning. As, as early as two years old, and even in pre-K, he was having all sorts of trouble. In kindergarten, having all sorts of trouble. Um, what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think there was some demonic component that this man needed to be treated by people that understand a spiritual dimension? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there was certainly evil to it. I, you know, I'm somewhat agnostic on, on the demonic mechanism, but I think if, uh, if you're less agnostic than I, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that there was something like that at work. I mean, this is a kid who, you know, whenever the word gun was mentioned in middle school, he would light up and just, you know, he would get excited. And when he was sent to a specialized school, he told them, you know, I had a dream of killing and being covered in blood. I think, I think this extends beyond, you know, normal psychology clearly into the realm of evil. He later, you know, told the police officers that he uh, did what he did because of demon voices that he heard in his head. We have some reason to doubt that because we know that he... Googled for ways to appear insane uh, after committing murder, but that you know doesn't solve the question. That begs a further question of, you know, what is going on inside a human soul that would Google how do I appear insane after killing, and who would have this clearly expressed desire to kill since a very young age? I mean, it, it goes beyond, I think, crime, law and order, beyond traditional mental health things, and clearly into the realm of evil. Um, the mechanism of that is, is somewhat above my pay grade, but it, it is evil. Well, and didn't uh, Roxanne Deschamps, is that how you pronounce her name? Yeah, uh, yeah. He, she said, uh, she mentioned when the killer was staying with them shortly after his mom died, about a month before, that in the evening uh, she would hole up in her room, uh, kind of barricading the door and hearing demon noises coming out from him. 
Um, so you know, there's a very there's a very strong case. The fact pattern is there for anybody persuaded to. And you know, personally, I'm persuaded the existence of evil and demonic possession is um, it's a mechanism that would fit the facts. Yeah, it sure would. I know I was talking about this um, last night at the dinner table with my husband and my daughter. We have such delightful conversations <laughs> at dinner time. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I couldn't help but be talking about this because you read this book and it just, it, it's, it's so shocking and it's disturbing. But when I mentioned this, that um, Roxanne said she slept, you know, heard these demon noises, slept with the, the door barricaded, and with a machete in hand, she said, which I thought that was interesting. She had a machete at home. Most, it's not something most of us have. But anyway, um, she said, my daughter said, well, why didn't they call police? And I'm like, well, you know, it happened 45 times and they did absolutely nothing. So, I mean, what do you do in that situation? You've got this man living at home with these, you know, terrible impulses. But again, everybody seemed to not know what to do about it. Um, we've explored the demonic a little bit. Uh, I also want to talk about these violent video games. And again, this is one of those things. There's a lot of kids uh, out there playing violent video games. For the majority of them, they don't become psychopathic killers as a result. But for some, it seems to have a very bad influence. And this guy was pretty much, I mean, it sounds like just someone who played video games all the time, correct? Yeah, he and the Newton shooter are very, very similar in this regard. I mean, neither neither of them had much of a social life beyond uh, online and single-player shooting video games. And at his house, his, his mom recorded to a social worker that whenever he lost at his shooting game, he would become so violent as to punch holes in the wall. Uh, she said, you know, my, my, my walls are polka-dotted from all the spackle I used to cover the holes. I mean, this kid had no friends, had no, you know, no civil society around him, no religion around him. He went to the school and he played violent video games. And one of his teachers wrote, wrote down, you know, I think the student's a profound danger to himself and others at the school. I don't think that he can tell the difference between violent video games and reality. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's the kind of thing where I think, you know, most kids can play it and it'll be only a mildly corrupting force, but for <laughs> kids who have this in them, yeah. uh, I, I do think, like, we've seen enough examples where it seems to really so profoundly warp their understanding of the world that they end up playing out in real life what they've played out in video games. Mm. I laugh at the mildly corrupting force, yet we seem to be so willing to let it into our homes. It's just, <laughs> I, I, I don't, and the whole video, violent video <laughs> games, I don't even get me started. But the other thing that you you just touched on this, but when I was reading your book, I was like, what? And and the teacher said when he when he loses at Xbox, he gets violently angry. And I'm sitting there asking myself, why is this kid playing Xbox at school? Can you help me understand that? Oh, sorry, no. Uh, the 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 teacher recorded his his mother saying that. Oh, his um, mother saying. Okay, I I must have misread yeah. that. Um, the 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 mother, you know. Whenever he, she didn't know what to do with him because he needed to be on his Xbox. Uh, and when he wasn't on his Xbox, he was upset. And then he would be on his Xbox, and he, uh, and he lost. He would get extra upset. I mean, yeah. this is a part of the failure, which I don't go into it as much as I could in the book, largely because the woman is is dead, and there's no no further work to be done. But mm -hmm. you now she had no idea what to do. She knew that her son uh, had profound evil around him. She, a few months before her death, told a bank teller. You know, if something happens to me, you'll know it was Nick. Uh, but she genuinely didn't know what to do, and she didn't have any 
and a community and a support and a religious organization around her that could help her deal with uh, the evil that was in her home. Right, and that, that's another aspect of this, too, I think, that there's this woman trying to raise a son by herself. Her husband's passed away, and she has no real family support. She has no faith community. And it used to be in society, those, those were our... Those are our backdrops, right? I mean, that's what, what girded people up. And, and I know for, I mean, for myself, that, that is what, what is my support. But for a lot of people, they don't have this. And so this elimination of sort of the understanding of faith and family and even the support where we have often these, these students um, who get in trouble and instead of the families sort of, like for me, when I got in trouble as a kid, didn't happen a lot. But if I ever did, I knew full well that my parents weren't going to be backing me up, they're going to be backing the school up, and I better get in line, right? But it's kind of the opposite right now, isn't it, at the schools? Yeah, no, it's, it's flipped. I mean, this, this ideology isn't just in, in government. It's also, you know, amongst parents. Like, my kid has rights. What are you doing to my kid? If my kid gets in trouble, it must be your fault. I mean, part of the reason why, you know, a student like him at a school like Stoneman Douglas, very upper middle class, affluent, you know, allegedly very safe school, Students with quote-unquote disabilities kind of had the run of the mill because administrators were worried that a parent might come to the school and, you know, basically sue them or make their life heck for, uh, for trying to, you know, proverbially lay a hand on their kid. Um, I think that, you know, you, it used to be that schools were kind of an outgrowth of uh, the community's moral order, a kind of a further exertion of, you know, the parental influence. But as so many other things in society have inverted or realigned. I think schools are being blamed not only by policymakers, not only by bureaucrats, but also by parents for mm. any problems that kids experience. So for the people listening right now who are like, I want to do something about this. And I know Andrew Pollack has, has been just such an incredible force in trying to get things done and policies changed. What can we do? How can we be a part of positive change? Yeah, I mean, so the thing that parents need to understand is that you know the story that we tell in this book is about it's about Parkland is about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School but it's not a story that's confined to there this is a, a story that's playing out in thousands of schools across America every day because these same policy pressures are at work you know I, heaven forbid it ever again leads to such an extreme version but it will and does every day lead to violence that goes unaddressed bullying that goes unaddressed threats that are allowed to slide by because of this pressure to not take a firm hand. And I think that the first thing parents need to do is to talk to their teachers and ask them, you know, it, are administrators hiding things? Are they refusing to enforce rules? Is there a student in my kid's classroom who everybody knows shouldn't be there? And the teachers aren't going to want to speak up because, uh, not to the public as themselves at least, because they fear retaliation, but they can tell the parents. And if the parents hear this from the teachers, they need to go to the school board members and they need to say to them, we know this is what's going on in our kids' schools. Our teachers are too scared to speak out. This is unacceptable. And you need to change these policies. Because like we talked about earlier, the federal government is no longer pushing it. But this kind of bureaucratic apparatus that runs education at a higher level, is the, the inertia there is going to keep on militating towards it. And the only thing that can uh, make school safer is parents getting informed and involved and going to their school board members uh, to identify that these problems are occurring and to demand that these policies change if they are. Mm. Well, I so appreciate My daughter actually goes to a, a Christian school, and I appreciate that they have a proper 
worldview, so I think they will deal with these sorts of things in that way. But I think it's important for us, like you say, go to your kids, talk to your kids, find out what's happening in the school, then go to the teachers, go to the administrators, get involved as parents. You know, Scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It stuns me how people who are so smart, in some senses, can be so dumb. To me, that's precisely what led to this Parkland shooting. Administrators and police refusing to see evil as a real thing, stemming from the depravity of man's heart and Satan himself. Uh, instead, they viewed it as a social construct or the result of oppression. They sought to manage it or appease it instead of confront it and contain it. And as a result, Meadow Pollock and 16 other people were mowed down by a murderous psychopath. What's mind-boggling is that these faulty policies are still in place in many schools. So appreciate you so much, Max, for writing this book. Uh, thanks for listening today. Again, if you missed any part of this program, just go to julieroys, spelled com. You can get the audio there. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you have a great weekend, and God bless. <laughs>